Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. It is, uh, it is March 30th. Um, almost at the end of the month. It is Thursday, March 30th, 2023. This is episode 77 of the Petronas podcast. We are not close to 100, but we are getting there. And um, I am very delighted to have a special guest with me here today. Um, this is the CEO of Deep Well Services, Mark Marmo. He is a, a friend of mine, and I, I think I'm allowed to say he's also a client of mine, um, but definitely a good friend and a leader in this industry and someone that everyone should know. Um, in the service sector. So, Mark, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, so, what do you tell us? We're gonna, we're gonna. I'm gonna timestamp this real quick, and then we'll get into what Deepwell Services is. And um, and I know listeners love. I love the service sector, but I know listeners love to talk about the service sector because you are at the most critical junction of, you know, pricing and inflation and everything going on. And you're sort of a. It's a bellwether for. For the industry, uh, but right now we are hanging at. We've had a nice bump in in oil prices this week, um, despite all the craziness in um, in yields and uh, and what's going on in the banking side. Oil prices have jumped up partly because of the contracts have rolled over, uh, but we've jumped up to seventy. We're north of seventy four dollar WTI. We're around seventy nine bucks for Brent. Um, Henry Hub is just getting murdered. We are around two dollars for Henry Hub. I believe we touched one and change yesterday for a moment. Um, which is not good, and particularly not good in the, in the Marcellus especially. Dutch TTF is hanging around at 1359. 10-year yield. It, the yields are really weird. You're seeing uh, two-year yields at north of 4%. You're seeing the 10-year yield at 355 right now. That's seen a lot of pressure. Um, so you see 30-year mortgage rates correlated to the 10-year yield at six, about 6.6%. And so there's a lot of pressure on yields uh, because everyone's baking in this Fed um, rate cut, which we I definitely want to talk about. I don't think that's going to happen because we have so much inflation still out there. But that's what the market was banking in. And that's why you've seen a sort of supercharging of the market um, the last week or so, two weeks, regardless of this banking crisis. So lots of craziness on that front. But definitely, definitely some positives for oil prices. I actually think these these positives for oil prices uh, put some risk in also the, the gas side as well, because it means that we're not going to see gas production come down. And we just had had a very warm winter. So with all that, uh, Mark, I'd love to hear from tell, tell us, uh, you know, introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about Deepwell um, and let's get into the market. Well, as you know, I'm Mark Marmo. I'm the CEO of uh, Deepwell Services. I've been uh, the CEO here for 11 years. So what we what we do, we just uh, we're a technology and training company that just so happens to have completion units. So we are. We come in after the well has been fracked, uh, <clears throat> the plugs have been put in, and we go down under pressure, uh, clean the clean the frac, or frac plugs, uh, and and install the tubing for the well to produce oil or gas. Pretty simple. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure it's really simple. I'm sure there's never yeah. any 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 issues with that at all. Um, no. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you are in some in some way or another you're chasing frack in a way. I mean, you're 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 coming in right after the frack companies are. Yeah. I mean, predominantly our business is chasing the the drill out. You know, the, the right. put the wells right. online. But we are a workover company. Right. We can fish tolls. We can uh, do any type of workover. Uh, so pretty much our our units are what uh, the Argentinians like to call a, a Swiss Army knife. We can do anything on mm -hmm. the path. 
just so happens that you know we probably in the future will be able to drill wells too. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. yeah. So you have you guys have workover rigs, um, and you I mean you guys are you guys are in the meat of the service sector. I mean this is yeah. the the crux of of what's going on. So I think that's um, it's a great. I would love to get into the state state of the service sector right now. I mean, with oil prices at seventy four bucks, with gas prices at two bucks. I mean, you are you are. Um, I mean, I know you're not located at the, this right second in in the Marcellus, but that's where your business, your office is in Villanoble and in Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, the Marcellus is getting hammered, obviously, because of gas prices. But you guys are in. Um, you guys are big in the Permian, and where else are you in the U.S. in the Eagleford yeah. as well? Just yeah, one one quick. Correction: We we don't have workover rigs. We have completion oh, sorry. units. Okay. So it's, okay. it's completion a whole new units, technology. Yes. Uh, but we are we're um, we started in the in 2012. We started in the Appalachian Basin, so we're obviously all through there to Utica. We moved into the Permian. Uh, today we operate uh, in the Permian, with offices there in the Haynesville and in the Eagleford. Okay, and how um. How, I mean, are you biggest and heaviest in the Permian right now in the Eagleford? The majority, we, we're pretty much even. Uh, 50% okay. of our business is coming right now, believe it or not, from the Appalachian Basin. We're busier than ever in that, even with $2 gas. Uh, but the, the yeah, I mean, the other 50 is New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana. Right. And we do, we do some call-out work, you know, out in the DJ and the Bakken and so forth, but we pretty predominantly just stay in the, the Eagleford, Haynesville, Permian and Marcellus. Okay. So we wouldn't see, we may see your stuff here on occasion outside of Denver, um, in the DJ and the Rockies, but not on, not on a ready base. On yeah, a steady basis. I think there'll be a unit out there this, uh, maybe in April. So. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. I'm and then we also my... operate in Argentina and we'll be soon operating in the, the Middle East. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's, that's really fantastic. So because of that, you do have a really good lay of the land uh, in terms of the market, in terms of activity, at least, you know, the gauging of activity and what's going on. And, you know, from, you know, we talk about this a lot, you know, offline, obviously, but um, there's a, obviously an uptick and it takes a little while for the Middle East. They don't, they don't add rigs and go quite as fast as the rest of us, you know, in the U.S. when we, we add stuff back. Um, but that's been growing and pretty strong and steady, uh, sort of regardless of any dips in price over the last several months. So I would expect that to be continuing to look pretty robust as well as stuff in um, as stuff in South America. Are you seeing the same things? Yeah, we feel great. Uh, we'll be operating there in the Jafora in the Middle East. So yep. that thing is uh, getting busier. I, we if we if we had the equipment, we'd be there now. Yeah. Well, and for listeners, I think a lot of folks are. No, but Jafora Basin is the is the large shale base. I mean, it is the shale basin, if I if I'm correct. Of um, yeah, now the, and the much. and the Saudis are going after have been going after natural gas in Jafora for unconventional gas for several years. Um, but it's it's picked up steam, and they've been slightly more vocal about it and putting um, you know they've been drilling and putting money to it, but it's really about getting the economics right. And I would not underestimate uh, the Saudis uh, commitment to, you know, producing increased volumes of natural gas uh, because increased volumes of natural gas in the Middle East um, are huge because that allows them to use that natural gas for power. And that allows them to take all that crude that they use for power and actually export it. So I think that's, those are, those are critical factors that of, of, you know, why you target that and also the ability to sort of export it. So 
um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, so you said though, in the Marcellus, things are actually good. And that's, I, I think folks are, I get a lot of questions on, on Twitter and YouTube and everybody asking about more about Nat gas. Um, and I think that the fact that you're, you mentioned that Marcellus is saying steady and it's one of those things I always tell people, I'm not expecting right now gas production to drop off a cliff by any means, because unless we're not seeing activity, you know, yes, we've lost rigs in the Marcells, we've lost rigs in the Haynesville with, with prices coming down. Um, but a lot of this, as you're saying, it's still steady is maintenance, right? And it's people who have That's to it. fill, like the, they're continuing stuff. So it doesn't just go away overnight. Um, and you, there's contracted volumes and things committed on pipelines, and you just can't drop that off um, out of nowhere. That's exactly right. You know, and that that's what we're seeing in the Marcellus. It's it's mainly maintenance programs. Right. And there there's no there's no real development. I think they were originally projecting two to three percent capex increases, but that could have been also due to inflation. Um right. but we'll we'll see and I think we'll see uh even in the Haynesville, it'll just be maintenance until this thing rebounds. I think hopefully more towards the end of this year and definitely next year. And how is uh, how is the inflationary side? I mean, we've talked about this before, but I think it's what's it? I know, I know, on the labor side, there's not a, a client I've had or a business I've spoken to that over the course of 2022 did not feel the pains and pinches on the labor side, um, and some of them were actually beginning to feel, I think, toward the end of 2021 to a degree. Um, but you know, as, as we're into you know three months now into 2023. Um, is the labor side, I mean, on, from an inflationary standpoint and a labor standpoint, how are you guys feeling all that? Is it getting any better? Yeah, it's getting better. I, I, the the <clears throat> supplies aren't as bad. There's not a log jam as, as it was the, right. the, you know, the prior two years here. Um, that's not so much the issue. The, the issue is, uh, again, it's just it's going to be labor. You, know, you right. can't stress it enough. It's finding enough finding enough people, uh, even your, um, you know, manufacturers and, and so forth, they can't find the people, which delays right. building equipment, which delays delivering stuff too. So, yeah, it's something I can't underscore enough to folks of, um, the, the America has to get back to work. I mean, the world has to get back to work, but it's, it's incredibly serious because, um, all the data points are pretty bad from, a a our productivity is down, our, our output per hour is down, the hours worked per week are down, um, and occupation and people actually working is down. And until that shifts, it, it creates for everyone who's doing business, particularly in, you know, in gas, it's extremely painful. I mean, it's still pretty painful, I think, in the in the service sector um, or in the in services in, in across the U.S., uh, but you hear it throughout the entire world. There's not a single area or place where they don't have workers, and now you have strikes. I mean, you have, uh, you, we've had strikes all over the course for the last couple of years in France, but you have them in Germany. You've got them in UK like crazy. Um, and obviously in the US, we heard about the one in Los Angeles where teachers were striking and there were 400,000 kids without school for a few days uh, because they wanted a 30% pay increase. And um, I know it's hard for people to appreciate that they may all want pay increases, but this is all extremely inflationary. So when people aren't working and people are striking, I mean, all this you know, puts weight for inflation and it's a big problem for the Fed because they have to, um, they're wanting to slow down because of the banking issues going on now, uh, but they really can't because the two big things in core inflation that are up are housing. Um, and you can see that the moment, I mean, the, all the talk on we haven't seen housing prices really come down yet. Um, and services, it's still a lot to get to get people into work. Um, it's still very expensive and those have to start cooling um, or we get 
uh, wage price spirals. And that's also a big problem and, and bad for everyone, including this business. Yeah. And on top of all of that, we have a, a media and a government that uh, makes us out to be the enemy and not the, the younger people. The, you know, our average age, I think, is about 31 in our company. Uh, they've That's pretty been young. indoctrinated that we're an evil industry. So you're going to, you're going to have high, you got to pay them higher wages. You got to give them very attractive uh, benefit packages just to even attract them into the industry. And then after the last few years being laid off and, uh, you know, the industry coming to a halt almost, we've, you know, we just have that on, on top of just even wage uh, pressure, we have people just don't want to work in the industry. Yeah, and I think, I mean, th- th- we definitely have that. And I think that's a really, really valid point of, of the pressures of, you know, demonizing the oil and gas industry. The ability for the oil and gas, gas industry to get people to come in is really hard. Um, it's something that, I, you know, Chris Wright has mentioned, I've talked about, is that, you know, if you're telling, you know, if the, if the president of the United States is talking about we only need oil for 10 years, it's pretty hard to incentivize younger people to go to school right. for um, for the for engineering or petroleum engineering to go into this field. That being said, um, I just the demand is so high for people. Um, I, I gave a talk at Colorado School of Mines to students, and um, it was it was super fun. I turned that into a podcast. But the conversation afterward with the students was really great. And all the students told me, I mean, they they have jobs. I mean, they they have not just one job; they have multiple job offers. The the kids that were in, sophomores and juniors have uh, multiple internship opportunities. I mean, because there's just not enough students. And there's not enough petroleum engineers coming out. And so these these uh, folks asked me straight up, you know, are we going to have, you know, w- what's the world look like? And I, I can I'm very, very confident to say you're absolutely going to have a job 10, 20 and probably 30 years from now, uh, because that there's no there's no scenario you can paint where you don't need uh, crude oil and natural gas. Um, so it's you're right. There's a severe, uh, you know, de-link and discrepancy. And we got uh, um you know, what the reality of what's actually happening versus, um, you know, what's being said. And it's a big, it is a big, big problem. Um, so it exacerbates the issues with the whole labor side, um, but exacerbates it further within the oil and gas side to disincentivize people to come over. And I think that really does matter of doing more stuff like this and educating people. And I know you got, you're big on, you know, putting your stuff on LinkedIn and you guys have a, you, people at your company love your company um, and are very passionate about the business. Um, but it's more of getting folks uh, like myself and Chris Wright and everybody who, you know, really advocating and talking about the industry and educating people on, you know, what's going on and, and why we need these products and why well, we're doing you, it well. You think about it. If we had, if we had the media uh, back us up, how many kids coming out of high school that, that graduated high school that don't don't have the capability of going to college or that don't have the money or just don't want to go to college they can come in year one and an 18 year old can come and make 50 grand working for Deepwell. and that's, yeah, that's a lot of money months, that's work six months a year yep you know, that's a off, lot of money for off, yeah you're off six yep. months six months other, with no without a college education that's uh that's pretty incredible you know, and then you have a career path where we'll show you to, to go through and depending on your aptitude, if uh, six, seven years, eight years down the road, you can make them $250,000. Yeah, that's incredible. Working six months a year. That's incredible. So, yeah. But, you know, there's not enough people out there spreading that. Uh, no, there's that not. Work. Well, and, I need to know, start night lighting. I need, I need oh, to start right. night lighting, moonlighting for, for Deepwell on the, on the service side. 
Um, but no, no, that I don't think there's a, I, I think, uh, and I've told you guys this before and I've told a lot of folks this, I do think that recessionary environments create attractiveness for attractive business. So the oil and gas industry is poised. Uh, yes, we're going to have demand slump and a lot of the, the pricing we've had, the pull down in oil prices that we've seen as of late have been recessionary fears. There's a lot of, uh, you know, forward baking, there's, there's thinly traded volumes and thin contract volumes and so exacerbated swings, but there's a lot of folks concerned about recession and that's weighing on, on oil prices. And, and we are going to have, I mean, we're sort of in a recession, but we're, we're getting further into it and it's going to happen. But that being said, we have a very, very unique environment where we have such geopolitical angst and rifts and an ongoing war in Europe that we are going to continue to have elevated prices. Um, and there's things that could exacerbate that further. I mean, Russia could could knock off a million barrels a day uh, to the world pretty easily like that. Um, and and prices could spike. I mean, there, there's lots of things there. But the point is, is that there could be easily, you can easily paint a scenario where prices remain in a 70-ish range to 80-ish range and uh, the, the economy falls down, you know, the demand in overall the macro economy and the U.S. economy softens considerably and unemployment rises. And that puts the oil and gas industry in a very unique position, not completely dissimilar to 2008, 2009, 2010, when, um, yes, oil prices went down, the rigs were laid down, but the rigs popped back up and people went back to work in, in that in that three-year time period. And it, this could be similar where the oil industry is hiring and the economy is faltering. And that that helps change when people are looking for money and people are looking for jobs and they're looking for to pay their bills and they're looking to turn their lights on. Um, that puts, you know, the industry has a, a chance here. And I think that's where we need to be talking and educating more and, and talking about the business and talking about these opportunities and this pay, because as unemployment rises, um, that's, this is a good place to land. Um, and unlike tech, you know, we're not seeing layoffs, banking and tech and everything on the, the white collar side, you know, the, the oil industry is not laying off right now. And no, and I don't, I don't think it will. Um, again, because we just don't have enough people. Uh, we hired 450 people last year. We'll hire another 450 wow. this year. That's incredible. Um, you know, and, and if we could get, if we could get more equipment, uh, we would hire even more. Uh, the supply yeah. chain bottlenecks still are the, you know, the issue on the manufacturing side, but um, yeah. And are not, those, are, are, are those coming from, and I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but are those supply chain bottlenecks on the issues on the manufacturing side? That's for equipment and that's stuff that's, uh, that's stuff that's, some of it's made here, but some of it's made abroad as well. And it's linking all of it up. No, it's, it's, it's made here. It's again, it's just, you know, do they have drivers to deliver the equipment to the manufacturer or, or the parts or uh, the hydraulic pieces, you know, where are they all coming from? So it's, it's just, it's all still a delay. It's not like it was, you know, five years ago. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is uh, the labor shortage, which I, I do think improves as, um, as the economy, as the economy weakens, you know, and people need jobs. I think that improves a little. And also I think it's overwhelmingly things, uh, things start loosening up because the demand falters elsewhere. And so businesses have to focus on where they're making money. I believe that, you know, I think the the next shoes to drop sort of in the market and not, we're hearing real estate talked about, but it's commercial real estate. And then it goes to construction. And, you know, recently, um, I think probably a lot, the market really isn't appreciating, or maybe the average average folks aren't really appreciating is liquidity and the lack of access to, you know, having liquid deep markets that you can you know easily access that cash and spend and when we had you know the pandemic and we had you know crazy uh you know spending and we had money getting pumped in the system like crazy 
that there was a lot of liquidity. There was money going everywhere and everybody was spending and we're not, I just was listening to CNBC on rail, railroads and talking about how railroads, you know, every, with traffic drops off or you know, we're not buying as much stuff on Amazon. I'm certainly not. I know a lot of folks aren't. Um, you're just, you're not seeing as much of the goods in trucks. You're not seeing as much of the goods on railroads and um, that's across the board. And so railroads are, they're not only moving less stuff, but they're also feeling liquidity, a liquidity crunch. And as interest rates go up and their ability to access capital goes down. So it's all, it, it's all coming home to roost. It's just taking taking a while for it to, to uh, you know, work its way into the system. And I think for a lot of folks to recognize that and then price that in. Yeah, I don't think we've seen the worst of it. You know, I, oh, we I, definitely have not. Interest, no. interest rates are going to really affect a lot of people. I don't think we've seen all of the banking issues. It, they're going to come further down the, the road here this year. So I think we're in for a, a pretty pretty tough uh, year or two here. Economic. Yeah, I I know. I, I very much agree. And actually, I was, I was speaking with someone yesterday and we were talking about, I think, the um, I do believe if this if the banking sector, I mean, we had this during multiple crises in oil and gas and, and nobody seemed really concerned about bailing out oil and banks that were heavily exposed to oil and gas. So, you know, that's not an issue. But, you know, when it comes to Silicon, Silicon Valley and it comes to tech firms, you know, we just throw that money in really quick. And I, obviously, everyone was trying to prevent contagion. But there's some serious issues with those bailouts, and they are bailouts, bail-ins, whatever they want to call them. I mean, they were trying to basically prevent these Lehman Brothers-style moments where, you know, Lehman, you, you bail out Bear Stearns, but you let Lehman Brothers collapse. And then when with the collapsing of Lehman Brothers, there's massive contagion, and the whole market just, you know, tanks, and everybody is pulling their money out. They're pulling their money out of money markets because they're worried that's not safe. And liquidity dries up, and no one can do anything. And you can't move ships from you can't move ships from Asia to the U.S. because people are worried about getting paid, and everything just gets stuck. And so that's what they were thinking they're trying to prevent. But the problem is, is that we're seeing that every every day there's a new thing on these banks. And Credit Suisse had all kinds of issues. Um, I believe that they were in trouble for there was something I was hearing the other day. They were in trouble for. Um, allowing Americans, very, very wealthy Americans, to move money around when they said they, they wouldn't, but basically they helped them get several passports so they could say they weren't just American. And so they helped these folks get several passports, move this money around, and there's all kinds of sort of shadiness in this. And um, it should ring alarm bells for folks because this is Switzerland, right? This is a, uh, a, a place that's supposed to be neutral. This is a place that's known for a financial center and hub. So when you're having banking, banking issues in these areas, and Silicon Valley Bank was just... Um, you know, they lots of folks had exposure to them, and there was a lot of concentrated risk because uh, companies would have all their money in there. So there's an interesting thing I think thinking about of how exposed folks are of diversifying their money, right? Of if you have a two hundred fifty thousand um, dollar FDIC limit, right, where you're insured, your deposits are insured. How many businesses are spreading that around and having two hundred fifty thousand here, two hundred fifty thousand there? So if this happens, they're you know they're not massively exposed. They can make payroll and they can do stuff. And I think that's something that you're starting to hear folks really talk about from a risk standpoint. And I think for oil and gas, not that oil and gas is uh, you know I think is going to be pretty resilient, but I do think that folks within the oil and gas business, especially small and private businesses, really have to pay attention to where their money's at and just where that uh, understanding where that risk is, um, just so they can make sure they have enough liquidity to keep doing business. Yeah, I think we, you know, we're, we're good on the banking side. We have a very good partner there. You imagine, you know, how many banks don't want to give Absolutely. us money, right? And there's a lot of people out there that. So 
it's going to really it's going to affect everyone and it's going to affect our industry unfortunately and i think it will it'll really affect the the the, the smaller businesses the mom and pop right. type type companies and i mean that in some ways that does create opportunity i mean that definitely is creating it would create opportunity for those who who understand oil and gas and would be willing to go into it and lend to it i think there's a huge opportunity there um but yeah there is pressure on especially small uh, much smaller than you guys but small private companies that are exposed that um just don't have the capacity to do deep risk diligence and things like that and if i'm not i'm not calling for the banking sector to have a massive huge fallout and going to be painful but it's it's you you can definitely see scenarios where smaller banks um, are just are, are not liquid enough and have had um, I mean and the, the problem is there's so much money pulling out that was already pulling out of the system as interest rates were rising I mean any individual who had a little bit of cash um, you know your your Bank of America's your JP your your main bank accounts were, aren't giving you any interest uh, but other folks were you know high yield savings accounts were so you move the money in a in a click of a button on your phone or, or online and you move that money over and all of a sudden you get a high yield savings account that's giving you almost 4% interest. Um, and the banks that, that was in the run up to the SBB people, banks were starting to feel that is that, and that's because they weren't offering that interest. And so the, I mean, this is just beginning in terms of this stuff of, of really yeah, it's sort all of down. That. And it's going it's to all take time, down. but it, it's coming. Every, yeah. Everybody should be prepared, have a strong balance sheet. Absolutely. Sure. Have a strong volunteer. And you guys, and as a private company to have a, to be in the service sector in a business that's ripping um, and have a strong balance sheet and, um, and be heavy in business. And your biggest problem is getting people. I mean, that's all, those are all really good signs. Um, I know it's the labor market's type, but it's a good, um, it's sort of, it's a good problem to have to need more people and to, you know, for the business to be that robust. So that's fantastic. Um, so, uh, we talk, Mark and I talk about China and Russia and risk quite a bit off, offline um, and when, when we're doing briefings and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and obviously, we've talked about the market and the economy and recession stuff. Um, but I, I think we should talk about that. Is, is, so I think that another, probably the Fed and banking and all this recession risk under underappreciated surely by the stock market because the stock market continues to just want to rebound. That's the nature of the business is it wants to always go higher. Um, but when it comes to Russia and risk and China and what's sort of going on in the world, um, what's interesting to me is that every time there is a crisis, so we've been, you, you haven't been hearing much about China or Russia on the news lately or the war in Ukraine because there's so much on the financial side and on the banking side. Um, and it doesn't mean that this stuff sort of goes away. So I think what's, you know, something really big for me and all the stuff I cover with China is that um, Everybody sort of gets re got really optimistic at the end of last year with, when they had their 20th Party Congress, and um, and they then after the 20th Party Congress they lifted the COVID, the zero COVID, and everybody's just super excited because they're you know everything's going to rip in China and and we're you know everybody should reinvest in China and their stock market's recovering and it's just it's just fantastic. Um, and the trouble is that all the stuff that they had sold off for and all the stuff they were really worried about outside of just zero COVID, uh, those didn't go away. And in fact, those have been sort of have actually worsened significantly um, from a regulatory standpoint, from what's going on within the government of China. I mean, those are getting worse. Um, and then the war in Ukraine is still it ha 
We haven't taken a breather on it. It's still very much ongoing. Um, and you've got China meddling with uh, the peace deals, whether or not they're going to have a peace deal. They're putting out an essay every week on, you know, if, whether it's ripping on U.S. hegemony or it's, it's talking about a 12-point peace plan, which is kind of meaningless, or it's, you know, China going, you know, Xi Jinping actually visiting Russia. And I think these um, these geopolitical backdrops are, are really important. Obviously, they, they impact oil markets and, and, you know, the overall economy very seriously. Um, and have serious ramifications for the oil and gas business. But I think just overwhelmingly, these are huge, huge geopolitical issues that are um, overwhelmingly, to your point, not addressed by the media, not understood well, and just sort of off the radar for most folks in terms of, you know, why does that matter to me? But they are, um, the consequences are pretty massive. Yeah, well, again, Trisha, as we've always talked, you know, geopolitics rules, in my opinion, rules the world. You can't run a company. You can't really understand what's going on, you know, let's say in Little Zealand and Opal, Pennsylvania, without understanding geopolitics. So that's why, again, why we have you and uh, get your great advice. But um, there's a lot that's, you know, going to, everyone wants to talk about a, a, <clears throat> what black swan event comes right in a year, but they always do come no mm -hmm. matter what China reopening. And then all of a sudden the banks start to, to fail. So no matter what, you know, you're not going to see commodity prices go through the roof again because China's coming back on because now we have banks failing that nobody predicted. Right. So staying in front of that stuff is extremely important. And, you know, I think the, the another concern that people haven't really have not appreciated with China, and I know people talk about it, but is that if they were to really rip open and they haven't. So we're three months into 2023. Uh, the Chinese economy is not has not recovered. Um, not to say that it it won't continue to recover. I mean that that's just a natural thing. If you're going from shutting cities under complete lockdown to sh cities not under complete lockdown, obviously folks are moving around. They're buying coffee. They're doing stuff. But buying coffee does not drive your economy. Um, it, it is not a. It doesn't really have that growth. And I think we're definitely seeing that. Um, and and the numbers are completely cooked on everything. There is not a single data point out of China that you can trust. So it's very hard to really understand what's going on. But I think you can see it. Oil prices would be higher if things were if things were much better. And I, you know, China gets a lot of crude oil from Russia. China gets a lot of crude oil from Iran. China gets a lot of crude oil from Saudi Arabia. Um, and they're definitely getting a lot of discounted crude. You know, at, at severe discounts from Russia. Um, so that helps. And they get they're getting discounted coal, they're getting discounted grain. So all that's helped from an inflationary standpoint. But if their economy was really opened and ripping, we would see it would be inflationary. So that would be bad. Um, because all the stuff that the Fed's done would would sort of, you know, be in check again. And um, we're not seeing that. So there's some I think that that's also worrisome because it's not going to be the thing, you know, like in 2008 when we all fell apart and China was still growing on a, on a, a pretty strong pace. They're not going to be left, you know, they're not going to be growing to sort of hold everything up. And they're also hurting because we're hurting as our demand is slumping. Uh, for, for cheap goods and stuff, they feel it. And I think that's something that's reverberated that people haven't really seen. Uh, and they did a lot of damage to supply chains. I mean, I know your stuff's made, you know, largely made locally, but there are a lot of companies um, not completely dissimilar to you guys that have, you know, supply chains that are exposed to Asia um, and exposed to China. And one little thing with a port getting shut down or a city getting shut down or something creates massive, you know, log jams. Um, Oh, we saw Tim Cook. We saw Apple in the Chinese Davos thing this this past week, which was a little bit ridiculous because he was sort of, as he's moving his supply chains out of China, he's still reaffirming his support for China because he still has exposure. So it's a huge, 
um, it's a huge issue and a huge sort of uh, you know headwind that um, uh, is not is not well appreciated uh, by is definitely not well appreciated by the, by the stock market, but probably not well appreciated from a risk sentiment for businesses. I, I think people still don't appreciate inflation here in the states. Oh, they don't. And, yeah. and what it's what it's affecting everybody. You know, just because it's gone down slightly, it's still you know. Let's be honest. I, I look. I don't trust what our government reports. So well, um, we inflation. Yeah. You're. That, I mean, no. You're. You're. You have a good point. I mean, your inflation. I mean, I don't know what uh, you. You fill up your freight, you stock up, and, and you're in you're in your in Greenville, and you guys stock up on your groceries. And if you go to the grocery store, there's no way that you do not see and feel inflation. It is insane because eggs and milk and the basic stuff that you could get, like I, I think what it's the inflation is the rate of price increases. So even if inflation goes down, your sticker prices, your Chipotle is not going down five dollars for a burrito. Your eggs are not going down, you know, several bucks. Your milk, so. That's the real problem is that if those prices just get maintained, let alone s slow the increasing, and they're still increasing, and that's the real problem that I think folks uh, don't understand is that the Fed <clears throat> may want to stop <coughs> raising rates, but they can't if housing prices are still – if uh, rental prices are still increasing, which they are in New York. You know, um, if, if this is still going on and all that to your – when you're talking about wages and getting people, you're having to pay people more to incentivize them to come in, and that – is inherently inflationary, um, yeah. and it just really it's it's really painful, um, and I'm sure you guys see it across the board. Um, I know that when I go to Pittsburgh and I get in an Uber, that's I'm everybody tells me about how what's what's the cost of everything and how much everything has gone up, um, and how painful it is, especially for gasoline prices. Yeah, well, you you just think about it when if uh, food costs are through the roof, which they are, no one's going to get on an airplane. You know, and air, the airlines have yet to rebound. Uh, I'm hearing they might rebound by the middle of this year or the end of next year, but uh, air miles are down. You know, that, that uses uh, a heck lot of uh, oil. So um, we haven't seen, I don't think, yet the, the trickle-down effect of the rates being raised and, and really even inflation. And it's not, I don't see it getting better anytime soon. Yeah, I think this is what um, the Fed doesn't want this to be the 1970s, and this sure as hell feels like the 1970s. And I mean, I've, I wasn't alive then, but this is the 1970s. I mean, you can't, you have wage issues, you have inflationary issues, and you have, um, and we, we've never, we've never experienced high inflation, high oil prices, um, and high interest rates. And and we certainly don't have the level of interest rates we had, you know, that Volcker had to do in, in raising interest rates. But the reason they had to do them was because inflation kept doing what it's doing now, and it would come down a month, and then it would spike back up. And that's that's the whole point of you know raising rates and cooling it. And now, if the Fed has to stop or slow down because of uh, banking issues, the risk on inflation is just that much is is just that much more certain. And, and the, it, it it's interesting that Fed officials um, so across the world. I mean, the Bank of England when they articulate and talk that they do half of their job for them, right? They don't even have to do raise the actual rate. They, they have to signal to the market. And so the bank of England has said, you know, several months ago that, you know, we're going into recession. I mean, they're basically signaling it. So what they were trying to do in some ways was, you know, get the market to cool off on its own and get that, get those signals in. Now it didn't. 
Um, and partly that's because the there is a fiscal side, to your point on the government side, is that no one wants to admit or talk about the role of the government in this, is that monetary policy can only do so much. You can only, they can, they can tighten the money in the system that they have, they can, uh, or loosen, and they can raise rates. But the fiscal side, if they're still spending like drunken sailors and writing checks like crazy, it is a problem because that is it's inflationary. The Inflation Reduction Act, which is not an Inflation Reduction Act, it's a renewables and green tech bill that is massively inflationary and it's going to devastate the U.S. economy. That is inflationary because it's a crap ton of spending. And it's in spending that doesn't actually do positive things for the economy. But we have this huge, uh, the student loans, I mean, this is another concern that people are having. Students have not had to pay back debt in three years. And so um, it, that's, we're talking like $400 billion worth of money that has not been paid back. That means that that's inflationary. It's also incentivizes people to do less work. I mean, they don't have the bills to pay. So, you know, you can have your work-life balance. They can, you can be more flexible. You can take lower end jobs or, or get less income and you don't have to pay that back. That's going to change because if, if come fall, they have to pay these back. And a lot of that was, I think, vote buying by the administration, kicking that down the road. But it's inherently inflationary if you if these students aren't paying this back. And when they have to start paying these back, and if, if they don't kick this down and they have, they have to start paying these loans back and it's $1,000 a month or $500 a month, that is game changing. Um, that means that there's a lot of young people that will need jobs and um, that will be painful to the economy. And it means that that's $500 to $1,000 a month that they're paying back in loans, if not more, that they're not spending elsewhere in the economy. They're not spending on going out. They're not spending on airlines. They're not spending on that stuff. And I think um, that's and something I talked to you guys about at length, but all that stuff is eventually does weigh on oil demand. Um, like flying and driving and stuff that it's discretionary. It's what you slow no, down. Bailing out, bailing out banks are going to be inflationary too, right? Yeah. No, bailing out banks is, it, oh. it, it is inflationary. I mean, it's, well, it's tricky. It's, I guess it's, it's also, well, it's also a moral hazard if you're bailing out everyone who uh, up north of the, north of your FDIC limit of $250,000 when you're saying we're going to bail out all of that. It, it, there's a lot of moral hazard there. Um, and, these businesses, like the tech side, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had a business model where they sort of had a lot of advisory services. And um, so there was an incentive to put all of your money, the, you know, to be a big entity, to have all your money in a bank like that, and then have all their advisory services and everything. I mean, there's a lot of risk to that. Whether And, and then they weren't managing their risk. Um, they had a risk manager that wasn't working for apparently like nine months. Um, so, I mean, that's just there's some pretty bad leadership there and everything. But yeah, if you're, when you're bailing out big banks, um, especially in sectors that are not doing well, um, that is, that, that is inherently inflationary and not to be said that we should have let everybody just collapse and, and people don't get their money. I, I'm not saying that, but there's risk to all that. Well, we're hiring. So tech techies that have been laid off, come on and work at Deepwell. Yeah, and you've done. I've noticed. I, I mean, you've done that. Whenever I come see you guys, there's a you know, and you guys come pick me up, and and uh, from the airport, there's a. I think there were some techies in the back. You, you guys had brought some people over on um, from different tech companies before, so it's already it's it's sort of already happening. Yeah, it's a well again, it's a it's a great industry, but we are highly we are highly technical. We always have to find ways because our customers. Um, you know, in times like this, oil or gas prices are two dollars. They can't afford to drill, right? Unless they're they're uh, so <clears throat> unless they're profitable. So we have to find a way to again make the, their pads, their wells more profitable, and that's what tech technology is the key 
to this industry going forward. It, it absolutely is. Can you get into that a little bit more, though? I know I, I know on your website, I know the stuff you guys advertise and you talk to folks about is the data-focused, data-heavy. So what, what is that that's, that's driving, helping um, from a, yes, I have lots of data, but how is that helping you with your clients and in the field to actually drive those costs down? What's, what is that actually doing? I think we have a database now of over 3,000 wells that we've drilled, drilled out that we can go in on, in any circumstances, how it, whatever pressure is on that well, however long that lateral is, we can go in and tell you, tell that customer, here's how long it's going to take us. And we have real-time data out there also, so we can actually stop you from having an error, stop you from making uh, a bad decision on the well. Uh, this is where, you know, it's highly technical and we have a lot of, we, we've, we've brought in a lot of people um, from the tech industry that have helped design these, this system that we have that uh, we can tell you, Hey, here's how much you should spend on your AFE for this drill out, you know, or here's how many days you're going to have to burn with other services because deep well will be out there, uh, you know, guiding, guiding the well with the, the, the past history that we have. So, it's really been a big difference maker for us, um, especially especially down in Texas, where I don't think they used it as much. Um, they're starting to use it more and more. You know, you always have your bigger customers like Chevron are always more interested in stuff like that. But even our little right. or smaller customers that are, you know, starting to, to understand, um, we can tell them, okay, you're going to only have, we're going to be on this well two days and here's what you're going to spend. And being able to do things like that in an environment oh, of, that's huge. Knowing know, up front, that's absolutely huge. Dollar gas, it's it really makes a difference, and that's really technology and data are going to drive what our industry does going forward. Yep. Um, can you talk a little bit? Because I know you 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 know this that I'm sort of obsessed with the production data and and what the operators doing and behavior and reservoirs that they're targeting in depth. And obviously, your company name is Deepwell. Um, but something you guys cover and target a lot. I mean, and something I don't think is wildly. Um, it's understood that lateral lengths are longer. Um, but I think what's um, the coolness factor of that is that how impressive that is and the feats that ha the industry has done really even just since 2020. I, I mean, we've been doing it previously, but from 2020 to now, lateral lengths have really grown. And part of that's because so much of the above ground, you know, it's cheaper to do it. There's a lot of cost benefits. There, there, there's tons of uh, regulatory benefits here in Colorado to have a longer lateral. But it's also, you know, we didn't do that pre-20, you know, for, for several years because there was some, there was fear in, in completing the toes of those wells, the, how much we were going to get back. There was just uh, anxiety on actually drilling that far that, you know, unknowns, similar to when folks wouldn't drill as deep, you know, and, and we have very deep, very, very deep wells, obviously in the Delaware that are 13,000 foot, you know, super high pressure, super high temperature. Um, and there were folks that were hesitant, but when the hesitance goes away and it's common to drill 13,000, drill, drill down 13,000 feet and then turn that bit around and then drill three miles in some places significantly longer, that's incredibly impressive. Um, and those are like, I mean, that's data and technology and everything, but that is just, it, it didn't happen overnight, but it definitely has been accelerated since sort of, you know, really accelerated since 2020. Talked about a lot in, you know, companies are really talking about more and more in earnings calls, but this is something you guys, it, you know, it's meaningful to you guys, you're following tracking and that last, you know, if you're three miles, we got a whole nother mile that we didn't have before on average. That's just, that's incredible. Yeah, we saw that back in 2014. Yep. And that's really why we designed the growth of that. The, yep. 
we, we saw this and we designed the equipment that we have. We're the only ones really in the world with this technology. Others have tried to copy it, you know, they're, and they're going to continue to try to copy it. But um, I think we've really helped the our customers, the EMPs, more so that we've given them uh, the ability to you know feel relief that if they're going to drill this fifteen thousand foot lateral, they're going to get to the toe. Yep. We don't. We never fail. We always get to the toe. Um, there's others that don't. You know. Coil technology it might get out only so far. Uh, we we come in and we we can get that. Most cases we can get down to that that uh, three four mile lateral in in one bit run. Wow! And get out of the hole and and be off of that well and on to the next one. You know, and that's really where when you're talking of and <clears throat> commodity markets that are at you know two dollar gas, that's really where you add the value. Yep. hundred percent. The speed and efficiency right. and you have to, and that's, that's the entire service sector for you guys to be able to go in and say, it's going to take us two days. This is what it's going to cost. That's incredibly meaningful. I mean, in any, uh, in any business, something like this is meaningful, but particularly in commodity markets and, you know, seeing pressure on oil prices and they're 68 bucks one day or 69 bucks one day, 75 bucks the next day. And there's, they're not cratering, but there's volatility there for you guys to be able to say at one, we're, we're going to, we're confident in that ability to go all the way down to three, four miles. Um, but we're also confident in the, in the cost and the speed at which we can do this. That's, that's huge. And, and probably, you know, really, really underappreciated the value of that sort of service in the, in the space and that the speed to sort of drive the, those efficiencies. It's the, it's the best industry in the world, but also it has the smartest people in the world. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it really is a good, uh, I mean, and so many kind like, I mean, you guys have incredible people. Um, I love, I love coming out to, um, I love coming out to Pittsburgh and going to Zealand Oval. I, I you've yet to be on a field tour with you guys. So we've got to correct for that. Um, yeah, we'll make and sure that. I need to do spend some time, um, you know, in the field of Marcellus, but no, you're right. I, I think it's really good people, really smart people. Um, and whether it's on the tech side or engineers and, um, and just a positive, there's a, you guys have a, a lot of positive energy in your business that people are pretty excited to work for you. Um, and, and love the, I mean, you guys are pushing forward and, and going to town and there seems to be, there's a lot of positive momentum there. Yeah. Well, I mean, where can you, you know, work in an industry that you, uh, in this, let's just say Ohio, where they've spent, I think, what, a hundred billion in the last four or five years drilling, completing wells. You know, think about that. You don't have Google coming into a state spending that kind of money. You don't no. have Amazon doing that kind of thing. I mean, we really have, and we don't get enough credit for it. You know, all the hotels that are being used, all of the yep. gas stations that we're, you know, filling up our tanks at and the, the restaurants. So, it is, it, it's a phenomenal industry that just doesn't get enough credit. We make a difference every day. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I spend a lot of time trying to explaining that credit to, you know, explaining what the industry does. So I, I very much appreciate that. And I, I think that's, um, that's great. Can, last thing I want to ask you is you talk about the tech of the people in your company. You guys have a lot of engineers though, right? What's the split? I'm just curious in a service, in a, in a service company between, uh, the, t the folks that have degrees and sort of the folks that can come in, you're saying, which is still really incredible to come in without a college degree to make 50 grand and work six months a year. It's a really impressive right. statistic. Of We have approximately 600 people now. I would tell you that 500 don't have degrees. Wow. That's a, um, and for the, like, 
That's that's a great number and a good yeah. uh, that's a good story for a company. Yeah, and that's not and that's not an exaggeration. And the, the people that don't have the degrees are making a great living. And just because they don't have a degree, they're uh, some of the smartest people I've ever met. Our president doesn't have a degree. Our VPs, there's a yep. lot of them that don't have degrees, and they're yep. uh, they're some of the smartest people. I would I put my money behind them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm first generation to go to college and grew up. You know, spent three. I'm third generation oil and gas, so I completely understand that. And yeah. I mean, there's a lot of yeah, knowledge just from just what, being in the what space. What a great as well. what a great industry that you don't have to go a hundred thousand dollars or. $150,000 in debt to make a living. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's incredible. And is that, uh, and I mean, particularly in the Marcellus and, and, uh, and where you're at in the business, I mean, that is huge. Um, because, but when I come into Pittsburgh though, it's always interesting to talk to the taxi drivers and Uber drivers who have no idea that the Marcellus is on their doorstep. They right. know that they've got an ethane cracker and I'm like, do you understand what's going, what, why you have an ethane cracker nearby? Um, and folks don't know. And they also see the really high gas prices, uh, because of the diesel issues and, and refining capacity. But I mean, it's, it's incredible to go to, uh, to go to Pittsburgh and the folks that don't know that, uh, the largest gas play, one of the largest gas plays in the world is on their doorstep. Um, yeah, 15, 15 years ago, you would never have heard, and a lot of people still haven't, of Zelian Opal. But mm -hmm. Zelian Opal's been rebuilt. And yeah. It's been because of the, the oil and gas industry that's in that one little county in Pennsylvania. Yep. Which is a, it's an adorable, I'm a small town girl, so, and a country girl, so I, but I, so I loved it from the beginning, but it is a, it is a really cute, adorable little town that's, that's really nice. It's pleasant. Um, to actually visit. And, you know, that we can say that about the oil field is not known for every town in the world, you know, being a cute, quaint little pleasance. And Zelenopol definitely is. Um, and oh, it's, a it's huge... helped even Western PA. It's helped Pittsburgh, yep. you know, transform from steel to where it is yep. today. I mean, it's it's just made the whole, uh, the farmers in the area that are driving around brand new equipment. It, it, it's just amazing for the economy. It's all trickled down and people don't get enough appreciation for what the difference, you know, what this industry does for local economies. Yeah. And um, you desperately, the Marcellus and the, the country, the world and, and your neck of the world desperately need a pipeline built. Um, and that, that's something that I can't, you know, in terms of the, the, you know, natural gas is such a competitive advantage for the U S I mean, it is, it is something that changes the geopolitical has, has changed the geopolitical landscape and the leverage that the U S has and power dynamics that the U S has. It's something being threatened by these very aggressive, the energy transition, climate policies, everything. Um, but it's so incredibly important to appreciate how we have to build a pipeline out of the Marcellus and export this gas because um, that that allows us to produce more and allows us to change the world um, and get more gas on the market. But it, it's it's a national and economic security issue that I think is um, it has has to be addressed and is definitely not even being it's not on the radar for most folks at all, and it's massively underappreciated. Now I would tell you the people in East Palestine wish that stuff was moved by pipeline, right? Yeah, I can. Yes, they. Yeah. Yes, they do. Uh, or yes, so I'm. I'm. I'm sure they. Yeah, it's the safest way to move anything. Uh, environmentally, the these uh, the pipeline companies they're they're amazing stewards of the environment, and they don't get enough credit. You know, mm -hmm. let's let's build pipelines and let, and, and even at two and $3 gas, if we had enough pipelines, oh, absolutely. companies would stay and yep. they would, um, and they would yep. still develop and they right. would still spend money in our, you know, in Western PA, uh, Eastern Ohio and, and West Virginia. So right. 
we do need pipelines. Unfortunately, in PA, we don't have a we have a governor that's totally against, and uh, we allow we allow short sighted thinking to get in the way. Well, it's you know the Marcells has a lot, and I know I I, we can wrap up on this this point, but the Marcells does have a lot of uh, similarities. I've mentioned this to you and to folks with the Marcells Show Coalition. I think Colorado and and the folks in Colorado on the oil front and the folks in the Marcells need to team up a little more because um, the the regulatory front that we face in the DJ Basin and a governor that doesn't also like oil and gas and um, legislatures that smash through regulations that have just really hurt this industry from, you know, Colorado, we went from 600,000 barrels a day of crude oil to 400,000 barrels a day because of the inability to get permits. Um, and, you know, from six BCF a day to four BCF a day. And I, I'm not saying that, I mean, you're, you guys are capped, the Marcells is capped about 35 billion cubic feet per day of production. Um, 35 BCF a day is sort of capped. Um, but you are very, very right. And it's a really good point to point out is that I, a lot of folks, uh, when we think about pipelines, um, redundancy is huge. So, um, yes, I mean, we overbuilt pipelines, but the redundancy in pipelines allows production to really accelerate and continue. And so even if, you know, it's it, even if you're two bucks in MCF for gas, the fact that one folks are still drilling, completing wells in, in the Marcellus because they have maintenance and everything, but it's also, they know it really well. It's a smaller molecule. It is easy to get this out of the ground. And these wells, in the Marcellus are I mean, a lot of lengths are longer. They are monsters right now. I mean, their productivity is fantastic. I mean, there's a lot. The Marcellus has a lot of love left to give. I mean, the rock has barely touched its sort of potential. And I think um, e- even if prices are low, which, you know, when you build pipelines out and you have more of an export capacity, um, you, you should have higher prices. You know, we should. We, last year, we averaged six bucks in MCF, which was probably too high. But if we were at a four buck and MCF range, that's really healthy for the global market, for the US market, for producers, for consumers. And we can get there. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of volatility in gas prices, but I, I think we could actually get there with pipelines. Um, so I think it's it just, it's incredibly serious to sort of get it, get it off the radar. But what is the, I mean, you don't have a governor that wants to do it. Uh, you know, you work with the Marcellus Shell Coalition, you know, our, our folks really doing enough on the lobbying side. It, it's frustrating to me that, you know, Manchin didn't, I think he, he Joe mentioned wanted to do it, but it's not it's not hitting to me. It, it needs to be t- elevated from a, a energy security level, from a national security level to an economic security level. It needs to be talked about in the context of China. It needs to be talked about in the competitive leverage that the U.S. has that we have to get a pipeline built. We have to. It, it, look, I, the biggest roadblock are, are regulatory issues, and it's government. And and you know, I guess down. <clears throat> the trickle down on that is the uh, um, it's the courts. If we could, free, the courts could free us up. Look at the MVP. How many years that pipeline has been caught up? Yeah. I think they have what ninety more miles to go. Yep. And the billions like of every, dollars. Yep. You know, and just think if you build the pipelines uh, to the coast of uh, Philadelphia, then. Maybe we could get gas up into the New England area. They're not paying Absolutely. sixteen to twenty dollars in MCF, right? Yep. Or, or or they're not buying Russian gas like yeah. they've been in the past. Yep. So And yeah, burning diesel it. instead in and, burning, you know, and, like Yeah, and heating oil, right? Yep. So uh yeah, we just I think our biggest problem are the courts and obviously the, the, the local governments that that just that are so short-sighted philadelphia that doesn't really get any benefit they control what happens in the state of pa yeah yeah 
Well, you know that I'm, I, I have been up there, spoken to SPE groups, ready and willing to do as much help and work as I can um, on the educating front and helping front. You guys have uh, great people. It's a great business. Um, and it's, uh, you know, 35 BCF a day that, that is uh, needed in the U.S. market. I mean, it's nearly half of our demand um, that is being provided in one basin. Um, half of U.S. demand is basically being provided in one basin. And that, that is just, that's incredible. Um, and, you know, has the ability to, I mean, the entire U.S. demand could be probably provided for in the Marcellus uh, with the right technical feats and pipelines. Yeah. And all the, think about all that manufacturing feedstock. Yes. Oh, I mean, right. And then create yep. job manufacturing jobs. In right. The ability, to, the ability to produce steel. And that, that's something I think a lot of folks, that, when we, the beginning of the boom of the shale revolution uh, from 2006, you know, sort of onward in gas. I mean, that was pretty game changing for steel, you know, for the co the input costs and electricity costs. And that's the other thing is, is so misunderstood is that um, and there's U.S. power and leverage is that we've had up until very recently, very stable electricity prices, lower than most of the world and reliable. And so adding all this natural gas into the grid has um, and I'm not saying it, it hasn't hurt coal in the coal industry, especially in, in your neck of the woods and in Virginia, um, but it's been very positive for stable, reliable electricity prices, which is hugely important for businesses. Uh, the ability to get, uh, the ability to produce steel, the ability to manufacture things. And I think you and I were talking about before we, we were clicked to record, um, the uh, talking about ammunitions and the needing to, to produce ammunitions for the war in Ukraine. And in Europe, there is, uh, there's a Financial Times article, you guys can find it, but in Europe, there's actually um, issues of power fighting for uh, for ammunitions production um, that they can't get the power for a, a, a entity that's trying to build ammunitions for the war in Ukraine uh, because they're fighting for power with a TikTok um, data center, which is just very, very ironic and ridiculous, and and that should be shut down immediately. Um, but that's like that. That is the reality that we're seeing in Europe when you don't have enough power, you're declining your power generation, you don't have grid stability, you're fighting to build stuff, and. We actually, and if we don't enforce regulation, we don't have that problem in America because we have enough. We have enough natural gas to supply all ourselves and more, which is um, is amazing. I mean, if if it doesn't get squashed from regulations, it's it's very very amazing. Natural gas makes uh, all the the plastics, the the cell phones, and so forth. Right, windmills and uh, solar panels don't. No, and you guys have and you guys have those ethane crackers and everything, which which I explained to the Uber drivers what those what those do and produce and where the gas comes from. So, no, that's great. Well, uh, Mark, is there anything else? Any 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 amazing things you want to mention on the business? Anything we missed that you would like to say? No, just thank you for your time. And if yep. anybody wants to come work at Deepwell, we're, we'll, we'll welcome you in. Awesome. Well, there you go, guys. Uh, hit me up if you want. Hit Mark Marmo up, uh, Deepwell Services. They're definitely hiring, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark. Have a good day, Trish. Bye.